from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. E. E. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've I'm got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, somebody described it as the point where the dog becomes the wolf. That time that's neither day nor night is so alluring to a writer. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay sit. Hello. Thank you. Hola. Hola. Hablas español? Un poquito. Muy malo. Sí. Oh, uh, no say la palabra for microphone. Don't worry, I know exactly how to use this. Thank you. Here with me is the Chilean actress Daniela Vega, who stars in the new movie A Fantastic Woman, which was directed and co-written by Sebastian Lelio. It was nominated for a Golden Globe as Best Foreign Language Film, and it just been nominated for an Oscar as Best Foreign Film. Sí, son A Fantastic Woman is about a young transgender woman, a singer whose life is upended when her middle-aged boyfriend suddenly dies. Vega's character, Marina, faces the kinds of misunderstanding and mistreatment that trans people go through all the time, but in the extreme, dealing with suspicious police and her dead lover's cruel family members. And she does all of this with resilience and humanity. My high school Spanish is pathetic, as you heard, so we've also got Kika Child here to help out with the interpretation. Muchas gracias por la invitación. Thank you very much for the invitation. I, I like this movie very much. It is plausible and beautiful and moving and occasionally disturbing. Is some of the abuse that your character Marina experiences similar to what you've faced as a trans woman? I would say that no one in this world can say that they've never been um, bullied or have violence against them. So yes, I've been discriminated as many other people too, but I've had the luck of always being supported by my family, my close friends, and my circle. That's why the violence or discrimination that I've had to live has been more from the state, from the universities, from institutions that don't allow me to move. And that's complex because I had been wanting to get into the arts for a very long time, but I hadn't been able to do it in that way. So, uh, Sebastian Lelio uh, essentially wrote this character around you. It's custom-made for you. As an actress, how do you prepare to do that role? I mean, that that's different than a normal acting job. Mm -hmm. Bueno, para inducir el personaje... In order to create the role, to bring it on, I got myself wet with Marina in every way. Lo que primero hice fue... So the first thing I did, because Santiago is very big, was going to the places where Marina lived, in the colors of the neighborhood. 
cómo ella se cómo ella start creating her uh, history um, the, how she moved around in these places y um, una biografía the background claro la inventé backstory. como una historia y eh, luego cuando el casting se cerró when the casting was closed and when I knew whom I was going to work with and who was Orlando going to be played by fuimos Orlando being your boyfriend companion uh -huh. husband, yeah. Fuimos a, fuimos a comer, eh, muchas veces. We went for dinner many times. We went to bars. We were trying to... Tratando de encontrar... As though you were on a date, sort of? Profesionalmente hablando. Digamos. Yes, 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 yes. Eh, pero para, para de alguna manera yo saber... So that I could know eh, how to look at him, where to put my hand. Hay que reconocer al otro como... como you have to recognize the other as someone that you could possibly fall in love with. Porque Marina efectivamente está muy enamorada de Orlando, entonces yo tenía Marina is in fact very in love with Orlando. You have acted for almost a decade now, but for the decade before that, you were singing opera since you were a little kid. Sí. Um, empecé a cantar ópera porque mi abuela I started singing opera because my grandmother was blind and she taught me how to see sound. Entonces me decía, cierra los ojos y Ponle una imagen a la radio. So she would say, close your eyes and put an image to the radio. And imagine that you're singing in the middle of the stage and the audience is numb looking at you. Y empecé a imitar eso. And I started imitating that. Y eh, descubrí que la música me servía para dejar de escuchar. And I learned that music helped me ignore the voices of the kids, the other kids who would bully me in school. Y un día... La profesora de música del colegio. One day, our dice, music teacher in school, she said, we're going to have singing classes at school, and whomever wants, you can come and go to the, the, the classroom. Y fui. And I went. Entonces, el piano, the piano, y canté un poco. And I sang a little bit. empezamos a trabajar y nunca dejé and I continued and I never stopped singing and that's you singing here in a scene from the film which you told me earlier was your idea that scene and which to my mind uh, entirely makes the movie so congratulations muchas gracias uh, let's watch a, a different scene from the film and I want you to describe what we're seeing here a ver this is a couple of days after Marina's uh, lover, Orlando, has died, and she's meeting his ex-wife. And she's basically saying, okay, I'll pay you off, get lost. And Marina, with a lot of dignity, tells her that she doesn't need her money. Y Sonia, que es el personaje de la ex mujer de Orlando. And Sonia, who is eh, Orlando's ex-wife, says, you will not go to the wake, you will not go to the funeral. Daniel, no vas a ir al funeral, ni a ninguna parte. Y entonces ahí, para Marina, comienza... So this is a great um, problem for Marina, because she has to decide if to go or not go right. to the wake. Y entonces, eh, finalmente, esta es una... 
So this is a situation of um, a lot of decisions to make because whatever decision she makes will change the journey of the movie. Right. I mean, it's really horrible, this woman who's no longer married to him saying you who have essentially been married to him saying you you can't be part of this. But as as unpleasant as that character is, she's not a monster. Ella está actuando por temor. She is acting out of fear. Yeah. Yeah. Y, y por desconocimiento. And lack of knowledge. Which is, I guess, the basis of most of of the ugliness and prejudice and bigotry that trans people face. Exactamente. Exactly. Yeah. Bueno, finalmente la película... So in the end, what the movie talks about is about the limits of empathy. Eh, acerca de qué amores about what loves can be conquered. Qué cuerpos pueden habitarse. About what bodies can be inhabited. Y... ¿Quién eh, prohíbe y por qué? And who forbids uh, why some bodies cannot be inhabited or loves can, cannot uh-huh. happen. That scene, and others too, uh, it seems to, you, you, you play in this kind of understated way. You could have gone bigger and wilder. Did, did Sebastian Lelio direct you to like, eh, keep it, keep it quiet. Don't, don't overdo it. Or was that just the way you performed? Mira, la técnica es para crear... This is the technique. In order to create this character, what I did was to put one layer on top of the other. Y para que las esas capas emocionales no quedaran como una escalera. So that these emotional layers wouldn't look like a stairway. Lo que yo hice fue difuminar los bordes de cada emoción. So what I did was diffuse the borders of these emotional layers so that one would be after the other. Entonces, en vez de ver las emociones como So instead of seeing these emotions as a stairwell, yo las mostré como una rampa. I delivered them as a ramp. Beautifully put. Como una pluma que cae. Like a feather falling. No como una bola de acero que cae. Pa! Not right. like a steel ball falling. There you go. You should teach acting. That's well, you know, well put. Uh, there are, as we've said, some rough scenes of anti-trans bigotry in this in this film. Um, do you think it's a pretty fair representation of uh, the way the life for trans people is, at least in a in a big cosmopolitan city like Santiago? Um, yo diría que así como hay... I would say that just as there's people who don't live uh, trans realities, that's the reality Marina lives. Um, pero también sería but we should also say that there's many Orlandos in life, y eso significa que hay... which means that there's many men who are willing to fall in love with a trans woman. Y eso es muy bonito porque eh, permite que la... And that's very nice because it allows families to diversify and therefore people can live with some more freedom. But of course, the societies that lack this, uh, these laws to protect this identity. It will be hard to have the tools to build a more hopeful future. Is, is this film, as people see it, one of those tools? The tools are given really by the state. Lo que la película puede hacer es preguntar. What the movie can do is ask you what you are doing with your empathy. Preguntarte qué harías tú si estuvieras en. What would you do if you were in this situation? Y preguntarte cuáles son. And ask you how do you live love and how do you deal with the limits of love. Right. Y finalmente es. And in the end, and what I would like to take away at the end of this interview is to ask ourselves what are we doing with the time that belongs to us today. 
¿Y qué vamos a dejar a las generaciones futuras? And what are we going to leave for future generations? Are we going to leave them only buildings, cars? ¿O vamos a crear sociedades? Or are we going to create more empathetic, more diverse societies? Más abiertas. More open. A la diversidad. To diversity. Daniela Vega, uh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Un placer para mí. Gracias por la invitación. Y recuerden que el 2 de febrero vamos a estar en las salas de cine en Los Ángeles y Nueva York. I'm about to say that. I'm about to say, a fantastic woman will be in theaters starting February 2nd. <laughs> And once again, congratulations for being nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Picture. Muchas gracias. Tu amor es un periódico de ayer. Except for a light in the basement, the house is dark when he pulls in. This is the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Richard Russo reading from a short story he wrote called Downstairs. Feeling the old familiar surge of panic, he wonders if his sister has heard his tires on the loose gravel. Her bedroom is on the second floor at the back of the house, so maybe not. In which case he could just back out and return to the city. But no, he'd lay odds on her being in the front room, standing at one of the dark windows, peering out from between the drawn blinds. She's probably been standing there since the sun went down, waiting for him. Russo based this spooky Gothic story on a painting. And the house, described elsewhere in the story, is precisely what you see in that same painting. A dark brick exterior, this single light on in the basement. The story, in general, captures pretty perfectly the painting's mysterious, sinister atmosphere. The picture is by an artist called Lyndon Frederick, who got Rousseau and a bunch of other fiction writers to write short stories based on particular paintings of his, including Tess Gerritsen, Anthony Doerr, and Joshua Ferris. Producer Matt Fasica brings us the story of this unusual group collaboration, which is called Night Stories. Night is when all of Lyndon Frederick's paintings take place, right at the edge of night, when there's still just a glimmer of light in the sky and people are turning on their house lights, or maybe you see the light from a TV or a string of Christmas lights in a darkened room. There's a little bit of an apprehension. Uh, there's a little anxiety. Uh, it just has a certain kind of feeling. Some Somebody described it as uh, the point where the the dog becomes the wolf. You know, it's just, it's that change in temperament. Lyndon finds his subjects by going on long drives, especially through small towns in rural Maine. Where else I'll just hop in the car and I'll just take off and I'll go away for a couple of days and I'll stay in like, you know, flea bag motels and just walk around at night. To meet Lyndon, I went up to Belfast, the small city on the main coast where he lives. He's a trim, strong-looking guy in his 60s with short-cropped gray hair. Hey, Lyndon. How are you? Nice to meet you. Yeah. Is this a good spot, or should yeah. I pull up? Lyndon took me for a drive to show me some of the places he's used as settings for his paintings. We drove to a strip mall on the outskirts of town. Okay, so what I'm looking at is the hot dog stand. In the parking lot, There was this drive-up hot dog stand. Lyndon parked the truck, got out, and brought his camera and tripod. He needed the tripod because it was getting dark and 
you needed to hold the camera still for slow shutter speeds. This is just the side of the building that is being illuminated by the kind of big arc like it's in the middle of the parking lot. It's really dark around it, but the building itself is really light. This is the first step in Lyndon's process. He finds a building that interests him, and then he takes pictures of it from all angles. Oh, yeah. When you take a photo at twilight, you can expose for the colors of the sky, and that makes any objects in the foreground really dark. Or you can expose for the houses or trees in the foreground, but that makes the colors of the sky kind of washed-out whitish color. So Lyndon's paintings, while they're realistic, they're actually doing something that photos can't do. A camera really has struggles to capture this, the fact that there are bright lights and dark trees and dark areas. They can't get them both at the same time very easily. Where me as a human, I can make those determinations when I make the canvas. Lyndon paints the kind of places that used to have a big factory or paper mill that employed everyone in town. Kind of like Perth. That's the town in upstate New York where he grew up. When Lyndon drives around in rural parts of the country, it's kind of like he's trying to find towns like Perth. These are towns that couldn't be further from the lobster shacks and lighthouses that most people think of when they think of Maine. The Maine coast, rock-bound with smashing, boiling surf that wets the faces of cliffs as they look out toward the broad Atlantic. A lot of writers collect Lyndon's work, and it kind of makes sense. There's a grittiness and a melancholy to his paintings. They feel like they're illustrating a short story. One of those writers who collects Lyndon's work is Richard Russo. Russo also happened to grow up in a hard-luck mill town a few miles from where Lyndon did in upstate New York. And both of them lived for a long time in Maine, although it took them years to actually meet. I kept hearing about this painter up in Belfast. That's Richard Russo. And people kept saying, well, you should really know his work. He paints just like you write. Thinking about all the writers who owned his work, Lyndon had an idea. And I said, you know, it'd be really cool if I actually had a show where I did the picture and I had the writer write a story of some kind. Lyndon's idea was he'd send an image of the detailed study he made for each painting, and the writer would use that as a prompt for a short story. One of the writers he approached was Elizabeth Strout, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Olive Kitteridge, and also a native Mainer. I No, I received a, um, a copy of the, the painting, and I was intrigued by it. And so I said, yes, I will, I will do this. It's called Dish. And it has, it's a house, a small house with the Christmas lights inside. And there's a blue, an old blue truck parked next to it. And then a sign that warns of children, one of those yellow signs with children. There's a darkness to it and a starkness. And it was just very um, evocative. What interests me so much is trying to find a way to enter the lives of of the people that are living in these landscapes. My job as a novelist or a short story writer is to try and, you know, get inside those people's lives and see how active those inner lives are. So she started thinking about the house and the painting and who might live there. But she didn't feel like writing a story that took place entirely inside the house. The character, I realized, was going to be outside and taking a walk 
That's the title of the story, The Walk. Her character, Denny Pelletier, is a retired mill worker, and he's feeling anxious. About his children, something was wrong. This came to Denny Pelletier as he walked alone on the road one night in late December. It was a chilly night, and he was not dressed for it, having only a coat over his T-shirt with his pair of old jeans. He had not intended to walk, but after dinner he felt the need in him arise, and then later, as his wife readied herself for bed, he said to her, I have to walk. He was 69 years old and in good shape, though there were mornings when he felt very stiff. As Denny keeps walking, he realizes that maybe what's bothering him isn't his children, but the decisions that he's made in his own life. As Denny approached the river and could see in the moonlight how the river was moving quickly, he felt as though his life had been a piece of bark on that river, just going along, not thinking at all, headed toward the waterfall. In Elizabeth Strout's fiction, the emotion is always running right under the surface. Her novels deal with stoic New Englandy characters who aren't always the best at expressing their feelings. She sees some of those same qualities in Lyndon's paintings. They're so packed with silence, and I love that. I just love how the silence of, of the images is somehow packed with emotion. Another writer who signed on to the project was Lily King. She's the author of the novel Euphoria. I went to meet King at her apartment in Portland, Maine. She had two very friendly Labradoodles who were running around and barking at the neighbors. King remembers getting the email from Lyndon and saying yes right away. I think the deadline was like a year and a half away, you know, because he had to paint the paintings. And that was great. You know, I'll always say yes to something that's a year and a half away. King chose this painting of a three-story house with a light on in the middle floor above a kind of storefront. And something about that twilight sky caught her imagination. The time of day, you know, just that... um, that time that's neither day nor night is so um, alluring to a writer. And it, there's something about that house that, um, that really reached some part of my childhood. So Lyndon sent King a copy of the painting to use while she was writing. And I propped it up in my bedroom and it sort of looked at me for several more months, um, kind of threateningly. And I... Honestly, I, 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 I kind of froze for a little while. I knew there was a story in there. I just, for a long time, I didn't know what it was. The story wasn't coming. And then something happened that put the whole idea of writing stories out of King's mind. My mother died, and then six months later, my father died. And um, the whole time, I, I, had the, uh, I had the image. Um, but those... Death seemed to wipe out my imagination for a little while. So I ignored it, and I knew that the, um, <laughs> I knew that the deadline was um, at the end of September, I believe. And um, my father had died on August 25th. So really by the middle of September, I hate for Linda to hear this, but I hadn't done anything. And so I remember I sat right at that table over there, and I sat down to do it, and I had, I don't know, maybe five days. <laughs> And uh, and it it was the first created, creative thing I had done for a long time, and it just poured out of me. King's story is about a woman whose estranged father shows up one day. And is perhaps some sort of criminal or some sort of 
hero, we're not exactly sure. The father drops out again, disappears, and the woman's friend decides to go looking for him. She follows the one clue she has, that he lives in a house with a mansard roof somewhere in Portland, the house in Lyndon's painting. But King made one change to the house in her story. The downstairs with the lights, it immediately seemed to me like a hairdresser. So she sent the story in. Lyndon hadn't finished the full-size painting yet, and that business retail space on the bottom floor was still a blank. Well, I hadn't decided what it was going to be. Lily wrote a story, a great story, and in it she made reference to an old-fashioned beauty parlor. And I said, oh, great, that's it. So this was like true collaboration because I got feedback from her story. So I I did some research and I created this old-fashioned beauty parlor in this picture. Well, as a reward to Lily, I put her initials in the dumpster in graffiti. If you look real close, you can see them. An L and a K looking like they've been spray-painted on the side of a dumpster in the driveway next to the hairdressers. It's kind of like the painting has two signatures. For the painter and the writer, who created the picture together. Had he said a number when he'd said Graham Street and she'd forgotten it? Old sea captain's house, he'd said, not wealthy, no view of the sea, hairdresser on the bottom floor. You can see that beauty parlor painting that inspired Lily King's story, along with other pictures by Lyndon Frederick, at pri.org slash studio360. The book of paintings and the accompanying short fiction, Night Stories, is out now. Our story was produced by Matt Frassica, who's got his own podcast called The Briny. We love hearing people's stories about works of art, paintings and fiction, but also songs and movies and buildings that have changed people's lives. And that's all for our series that we call Aha Moments. Like the story, we heard from Laura Preftis, who listens to the show on KUOW in Seattle. By the time she was in her 30s, she had had her share of failed romances. Then she met a guy at work named John. For some reason, we had this dead rose that sat on our front desk. And he asked, like, what's with the dead rose? We're like, well, it's not really dead, it's just dried. And one day he came in and he replaced the rose with another fresh rose. It was just really sweet. And then we got to talking and got to dating. Eventually, things got very serious, for better and for worse. John proposed, they got married four days later, and not very long after their wedding, John was diagnosed with lung cancer. Laura dealt with that news alongside John's grown son, Scott. It was stage four, and we couldn't keep him calm, and we eventually had to take him into the hospital. And we were with him in the hospital, and finally his friend Dick said, go home, just get some rest, and we went home. And we both knew, this is Scott and I, we both knew that he would die that night because he wouldn't die with us in the room. He wouldn't want to do that to us. He just did not want to hurt us. Oh, God, that first year was so, I always describe it as surreal. It felt so surreal. I didn't want to feel it. I didn't want to cry. I I did not want to feel it. And so 
I just kind of went through the motions. I mean, I went back to work. I, you know, went out with friends. I went to a grief support group. Um, I did all these things. But at night, in particular, when I was home, it was just so lonely. So the way I would distract myself is with TV. Just laying in bed, flipping through the channels. My dogs would be on the bed with me. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was two hours of reruns every night. You will find them and cut out their hearts one by one. And so I'd watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Sex in the City. Are you thinking about sleeping with him? No. And whatever else was on TV. Lighten up on the boundary top. And what I remember was I saw the commercial. They're enchanting, breathtaking, bewitching sisters. And I remember the tagline. There's a little witch in all of us. There's a little witch in all of us. And I loved that tagline. <laughs> I thought that was funny. And I thought, oh, why not? Let's watch it. It you know, seemed like a really good diversion. Practical Magic is this movie about these beautiful but cursed witches. For more than 200 years, we Owens women have been blamed for everything that has ever gone wrong in this town. The movie stars Sandra Bullock oh, I hope I never and Nicole Kidman. I can't wait to fall in love. As the two beautiful but cursed witches. And the curse is that any man who gets involved with an Owens woman is doomed to die an untimely death. So, in the first part of the movie, um, Sally, Sandra Bullock, as a little child, decides to create a spell for herself never to fall in love because she doesn't want to go through heartbreak. What are you doing? Summoning up a true love spell. thought you never wanted to fall in love. It's the point. The guy I dreamed up doesn't exist. And if he doesn't exist, I'll never die of a broken heart. But her aunts decide to meddle with it. Just a little push. And so she meets this guy named Michael and she falls in love and they get married. But, of course, she is an Owens woman, so... (laughs) The first scene that really got to me was after he dies. Sandra Bullock goes to her aunts and asks them to bring him back from the dead. brought him into my life. Now I want you to bring him back. Bring him back! And, of course, they won't do that. We don't do that. Because he would be something dark and unnatural. And unnatural. As they say. I don't care what he comes back as, as long as he comes back. And she's just begging. Please do this for me. And she's, of course, so distraught. Please. And she's just crying, and she's like, please, please, please please bring him back. I I want want him back. And that just devastated me because I'm like, it's those exact words that I was saying to myself this whole time after John died. I kept saying, I just want him back. And I'm just sitting there, I'm just crying and crying and crying, all the crying I'm trying to avoid. Earlier in the movie, there's this scene where Sally starts hearing the Death Watch beetle ticking which is the harbinger of the um, imminent death of the Owens lover. And she starts to 
freak out because she knows what this means. She knows that her husband's going to die. And so she starts pulling up the floorboards. No, she's hippie. You know, just desperately pulling him, pulling one up, pulling up another, pulling him up. Then she hears the ticking going somewhere else, and she pulls it up, pulls it up, and you see the floorboards are just piled up, and there's like this gaping hole. And the Death Watch beetle is still ticking. And it's just like what I did. First, there was the experimental drug, and we were really, really hoping the experimental drug would work. And then there was some old standard treatments, as they called it, and they didn't work. And then we get this herbal infusion from China. And, of course, you know, that doesn't work. And it just keeps ticking. I went out and bought the movie. And I was in a widow support group, and I don't think I really ever cried in the widow support group. But I'd watch this movie, and I would cry every time. <laughs> and, and I could cry in the safe environment for me, and I could get this, this grief out of me. Sally, at the end, what happens is that she finds love, and the curse is broken. Was it our joint hands that finally lifted Maria's curse? I'd like to think so. Of course, it's a Hollywood movie, and it has that happy ending. But again, I can resonate with Sally because I found love again. (laughs) About two and a half years after John died, I met my current husband, Jim, and we've been married now 11 years. And, you know, of course, was a little bit nervous getting on the air with you guys today. And I said, well, let me, you know what? I want to watch the movie again. I want to have a fresh memory of the film, even though I've seen it a zillion times. And I looked at him. I said, Jim, you probably don't want to watch it, right? He's like, no, I'll watch it. (laughs) And so we sat on the couch and we watched the movie. And... um, He held my hand during the more pivotal grief scenes. Um, And then when it got to the second half of the movie with all the silliness um, and demon possessions and everything, he would just look at me and roll his eyes. (laughs) That story was produced by Tommy Bazarian. Is there some piece of entertainment or art that prompted an aha moment for you that really changed your trajectory or reshaped the way you looked at life? Tell us about it in an email or voice memo and send that to incoming at studio360.org. That's incoming at studio360.org. Studio 360. Leonardo da Vinci is known as one of the great painters of all time and an inventor way ahead of his time and a scientist and a visionary. But one part of his resume is always left out, theatrical prop and production design impresario. Back in the 1490s, Leonardo was hired to stage plays for the Duke of Milan Kind of a day job for the painter of The Last Supper, but... It turns out that if Leonardo never created those theatrical spectacles, 
the single most arresting visual aspect of that famous painting, the way Jesus and his disciples are all on one side of the table facing out, wouldn't have been there. That is only one of the, huh, who knew, surprises that delighted me as I read Walter Isaacson's latest bestseller, Leonardo da Vinci. He joins us now from a studio in New Orleans, which is why he sounds a little echoey, to talk about the madcap show business part of da Vinci's multifaceted genius life. Walter, my friend, welcome back to Studio 360. Thanks, Kurt. Good to be back. So who was hiring Leonardo to do all this work on stage design and making props and costumes? The Medici family, Lorenzo de Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent, is in charge of the city. And every week there were three or four great pageants or plays or things that happened at the court. And so sometimes it's a pageant or play. Sometimes it's a debate over anatomy. But that was the thing you got paid to do. You, you know, you didn't get paid to invent flying machines. You got paid to make props for the stage. And... I think Leonardo loved it, too. It wasn't just he did it for the money. He loved the theater, and you just see all these drawings in his notebooks. One of the first, the first drawing I think Leonardo does is a silver point of a beautiful, ornate helmets and costumes, and then you realize, well, that was done for a pageant for the visit of an important duke. I mean, because he did produce these whole plays. Like, you talk about this one, The Feast of Paradise. Yeah, A Feast of Paradise, and it's produced many times, and it has, you know, people coming up from Hades and flying down, and it has mechanical devices where the earth is opening up, and people coming out of it. And so Leonardo designed the mechanisms and the machinery that moved the scenery on the stage. Was was it like let's say when we saw Star Wars in 1977 and went, holy smoke, I've never seen that before. I think they were awed by the mechanisms. He loved having things like the having a stage that was two hemispheres and it would turn around mechanically in the middle of the performance or a earth that would open up. I assume people were totally awed by it, not just like Star Wars, but the way... You might have been awed as a child. I'm, you know, from New Orleans, growing up and watching a great Mardi Gras pageant or even a, you know, Madonna concert or, you know, Lady Gaga concert. They they were into special effects. In in the notebooks, uh, you talk about this, this sketch he made for a mechanical bird. It's amazing how he does that prop of a mechanical bird for a theatrical pageant. And then he becomes interested in, well, how would I do this in reality? Leonardo always took his fantasies and his imagination and then tried to apply them in reality, which is why he then tries to make human-powered flying machines. And so we get an entire series of notebooks on the flight of birds, which he just studies exactly how each bird flaps a wing he does exactly the breast muscles of the bird, and then he does a dissection of human muscles to see if they can do it. And all of these things come from trying to take that prop of a mechanical bird and seeing if he can make human-powered flight. Right. That helicopter, that famous drawing he has of what looks like an aerial screw and everybody says it's the first helicopter, what surprised me is when I looked in the notebooks, it was part of the props 
to bring angels down from the rafters in a play. And at the very, very end of his life, it's almost poignant and sad, his very last drawing of a bird, you can see the stage wire there. And once again, he's doing it as a prop because he's been unable to create uh-huh. a human-powered flying machine. Which is so great. So did all that work that Leonardo did in the theater influence how and what he did in terms of his most famous work, his paintings? I think so. Even The Last Supper is done as a theatrical stage set. <laughs> it's almost like, okay, everybody get on this side of the table if you want to be in the picture. Well, the place you would do that is on a stage where you tilt the table and it's angled and the scenery goes back and everybody's on one side of the table facing the audience. And that's why the walls of The Last Supper go in in an artificial perspective way. And the light comes in from the window in a very theatrical way. And the gestures are theatrical. And it's even a drama. As you, you know, imagine Jesus saying, one of you shall betray me. It's almost a storyboard because you can see the motion and drama in his paintings, his drawings, and it all comes from his theater work. Well, and he painted, including some of his most famous works, in public. He, he put on a show as a painter. I do think he liked drama even when he was painting. And so when he's doing The Last Supper, people come to the refectory of that monastery and they're watching him do the painting. It's almost like a public display. And he's very dramatic about it. Uh, We have one of the accounts of one of the friars there of how Leonardo would come blowing in in the afternoon and would stare at it for like a long period of time and then just put one brush stroke and then stare for a while, and then dash off. One of my absolutely favorite uh, scenes in your book is is this amazing sort of top chef competition between Leonardo and Michelangelo, about which I had known nothing. They're hired to simultaneously paint battle scenes next to each other, essentially, in Florence. Why was this um, such a fraught uh, episode? Because they were great rivals, and Michelangelo was as reclusive and slightly, you know, uh, a nastier guy, didn't have many friends. Uh, And, of course, Leonardo had his whole retinue and his boyfriend and everything else. So they would run across each other in the plazas of uh, Florence, and there was a tension there. They would diss each other, and so... The elders of Florence decide, well, let's make use of this competition, and they hire each of them. They commission each of them to do a battle scene on opposite walls in Florence of the council hall. Well, and this Michelangelo versus da Vinci smackdown in the cathedral is like like a 1490 reality show. It's crazy. It is. It's just like a TV reality show. Yeah. No, you can't make it up. (laughs) Earlier, you mentioned uh, Leonardo's boyfriend. Like a few people in the theater and the arts these days, uh, Leonardo was gleefully, openly gay. But as a student, as a young person reading about him, I never learned that. I think that says more about our histories than it does about Leonardo. He was quite comfortable with his longtime partner, uh, nicknamed Salai, and later another partner named Meltzi. He was quite comfortable being gay. And uh, a lot of people, you know, the nickname for gay 
in some places back then was Florenza, meaning somebody yeah. from Florence. So that fact was my, one of my favorite facts of this book. Well, and that shows why the creativity. I mean, why is Florence the birthplace of the Renaissance? It's partly because they were tolerant. And so right. if you were a Michelangelo or a, a Leonardo da Vinci and you were gay, uh, it didn't really bother other people. And, I, you know, I think it bothered earlier writers about Leonardo. They tried to skirt the fact that he was gay. This is difficult to do if you read the notebooks because he's even talking about all the little gifts he's buying, Saleh, or the expensive gifts he's buying, and drawing, you know, wonderful red chalk drawings of Saleh in the nude. It's part of who he was, and he was comfortable with it. And he dressed very extravagantly and flashily, right? He loved pink and purple short tunics. And who doesn't? Yeah, you know, and uh, he had long, curly, flowing hair. If you want to know what he looks like, just look at the Vitruvian man, uh, because that's him with the curly, flowing, blonde hair, the well-proportioned body. And he even, one of my favorite little things in the notebook, he comes up with a recipe for blonde hair dye. He really does care about his appearance. And I now understand Leonardo DiCaprio is going to play this other Leonardo uh, in an adaptation of your book and producing the movie. Um, Did he get hooked personally and just say, Walter, I want your book and I'm going to play Leonardo? How did that happen? Well, I don't know since I don't know Mr. DiCaprio. But I do know that he has said that he was named after Leonardo da Vinci because his parents were at the Uffizi, I think, looking at the Annunciation when Leonardo was in the womb and started kicking. And his father said, well, we'll name him Leonardo. And, I, uh, you know, I th- they bought the rights to the book, and I hope they make it because Leonardo DiCaprio, who, as I say, I, I don't know, but he's somebody who's interested in nature, interested in the environment, interested in science, interested in painting and art. And and is beautiful looking. Yeah, and (laughs) just like Leonardo da Vinci. So, Walter, you've been through this before. Einstein was turned into a 10-episode TV season on the Nat Geo channel, a series called Genius uh, with Ron Howard as the executive producer. Your Steve Jobs biography was turned into a feature film uh, directed by... Uh, Danny Boyle and written by Aaron Sorkin. When when you sell the rights to your books, do you just cash those checks and hope for the best? Yeah, I'm very hands-off because I know I don't know anything about making movies. I kind of get out of the way and hope they'll do a good job. Um, so when when they make TV shows and movies out of your books, do you do you eagerly go and see them? No, and what I don't get is how much license should you be able to take when you're doing a movie? Like in Selma, should you be able to say that Lyndon Johnson sent the Martin Luther King tapes to Coretta if that didn't happen? Right. In the movie, uh, an FBI tape reveals to Coretta King that her husband's unfaithful. I never feel comfortable with the amount of literary license people tend to take uh, when they're doing a historical book. Most of the time, I'm kind of turning to my wife and saying, wait, 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 it didn't happen that way. And she yeah. says, you're not very good at watching movies. Well, thanks for, for writing this. And especially, as I say, for imagining Da Vinci as this impresario, theatrical guy was was really an aspect of him, a dimension of him I, I was completely clueless about. So thank you. 
Thank you, Kurt. Walter Isaacson's Leonardo da Vinci is still in bookstores. Before we sign off, I want to set the record straight about details in a couple of our recent stories. In my introduction to our segment about the song Convoy, I'd said that Barry Manilow wrote his hit single, I Write the Songs. Ironically, as many listeners pointed out, Manilow didn't write I Write the Songs. It was written by Bruce Johnston. And in my introduction to our story about fictional depictions of sexual harassment on TV, I mentioned public radio station WNYC. I said that women who worked there had accused three different, quote, former and current show hosts, unquote, of harassing them. Between the time I recorded that, originally for our podcast, when it was true, and when the show was broadcast, the other two accused hosts were fired. So, to be clear, none of those three are still on the air at WNYC. That's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360... We don't sit around the dinner table watching TV as much as we sit around drawing. When Yoko and John are your mom and dad. It was just kind of the way I was brought up to live my daily life. Sean Lennon, Roseanne Cash, and more musicians whose parents rock. Next time on Studio 360.